And uh, we are in the second part of a series of indeterminate length. Uh, we'll go at least five weeks in this session, and I don't know how many uh, lectures will be uh, later in this year. Last week, we dealt with the question, what is amillennialism? And we looked at uh, defining terms, and we're starting very slow and expanding and going further in depth as we go along. Tonight, our second lecture, we'll talk about interpreting Bible prophecy, and we'll look at those interpretive presuppositions that we have that really drive and determine, by and large, our eschatological viewpoint. So, hermeneutics is simply the science of interpretation. Uh, this is the art of interpreting a, a text, in this case, uh, the scriptures. We'll talk about what presuppositions uh, go into that basic fundamental hermeneutic. And I think it's important to notice that the reason why there are so many major schools of thought among evangelicals regarding the basic nature of eschatology, kind of the big picture eschatology, and then the millennial question, which is much more narrow, is that there are at least two different hermeneutics or systems of interpretation utilized by interpreters of Scripture. Um, each of the major schools of thought, whether you be historic premillennial, whether you be dispensational or on the covenantal side, reformed on millennialism or even postmillennialism, um, it's very commonplace that each of these schools will argue that their position is the natural result of the straightforward reading of Scripture and that the particular system set forth is just obviously the result of an unbiased examination of the relevant biblical data. I mean, there, there is a sense in which all of these schools simply believe that, hey, this is right in the text of Scripture. It just jumps out at you. Why can't you see it? And that's part of the problem. The other system, systems are in error, it is argued, because they don't do that. Uh, they have this presupposition-laden set of categories that they force in the text. We don't do that. Uh, they force this interpretive grid upon the Scriptures. We don't do that. Um, the fact of the matter is, we all do it. And it's important to acknowledge that we do it and critically examine those presuppositions that we do have. And so, you know, at the end of the day, evaluating how one interprets the relevant biblical data and determining what presuppositions are in view as we do so is really vital when we talk about the millennial question if we're ever to get past this notion of trading proof texts with opposing viewpoints. How do we get someplace? How do we get around this notion that we're, you know, two trains on parallel tracks and we're coming right at each other and just kind of pass in the night and we go our separate ways and we don't get anywhere? And so all we basically can do is call each other names. How do we get past that? And so what I've tried to do from the beginning in the years I've lectured on this topic is to just go back and devote one whole lecture to this and remind ourselves that, look, everybody has presuppositions that color how they read the Scripture. And the assumption, the naive assumption, that any one of these millennial views is simply the result of a straightforward, unbiased reading of Scripture is utterly naive and simplistic. We've all heard the stories, you know, the anecdotal stories that so-and-so was isolated for months in a cabin in the snow and all they had was their Bible. And, you know, they took notes and they read and they prayed and out came a dispensational interpretation of the Bible. 
We've heard amillennial people claim the same. You know, it just doesn't work that way in real life. That's naive and simplistic. Now, in order to understand why Christians reach such diverse opinions about something they claim to be the result of the straightforward reading of Scripture, the presuppositions they hold before they come to the text must be clearly identified, clearly set forth, and then carefully evaluated. At some point before the discussion begins, when you start trading passages and doing the exegesis, somebody's got to get out the box top to the puzzle and say, here's the big picture. This is what I'm going for. That is what's driving the way in which I'm assembling the pieces. And unless and until you do that, you're just going to be two trains on parallel tracks. All you'll do is pass each other at high speed and you'll never get any place. Now, presuppositions aren't problematic so much if we know what presuppositions we're using, if we understand the methodology we're using, if we, if we have our methodological presuppositions pretty well before our eyes so that we're able to test them, we're able to, to put them to the critical test, and we're able to, to see if they, in fact, interpret the largest number of passages with the least amount of tweaking or forcing. That seems to be, you know, there, there's, this is, we can't really use scientific method here. We can't go into a lab and come up with some kind of experiment that will tell us whether our method's true or not. But over time, you know, can we make sense of the, the greatest number of biblical passages and do the least amount of straining and forcing? That's kind of the test we're going to have to use. And so presuppositions aren't really problematic if we identify the ones we're using and, and are constantly testing them. At least we've got some way to see if we're wrong, some way to, to formulate a hypothesis and, and put it to the test. But presuppositions are really problematic if they go unstated, and they're even more problematic if people don't believe they have any. If you simply say, well, I'm just following the Bible, and you have this interpretive grid... I guarantee you the person who claims to be he's, that claims he's just following the Bible has an interpretive grid and isn't acknowledging it and refuses to believe that they have it. And when that happens, you end up with the person who always argues from the perspective of invincible ignorance. They have reached their position. They're not going to change. There's no evidence you can show them that will overturn their position. Their heels are dug in. You know, it's like pulling the dog on the chain and all fours are doing this, you know. That's what you get from a person who doesn't think they have any presuppositions and who basically can then lock in and be unwilling to test and see whether their long-held cherished beliefs are in fact correct. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to be wrong about eschatology. I would like to hold the right view. And the only way I know I'm going to hold the right view is by letting my feet come out of the mud and identifying my presuppositions, testing them, interacting with others who disagree with me to see, you know, after that iron sharpens iron if I'm still standing, and to let the Scripture constantly inform my thinking so that I'm able to test those cherished presuppositions. We've got to do that or we're not going to get anywhere when we talk about eschatology, especially when we look at another position as I would say dispensationalism rather critically. Now, dispensationalists are dispensationalists for a reason. Uh, 
Um, and the same can be said of on millennialism. In order to come then to a biblical understanding of eschatology, it's vital to know what dispensational presuppositions are. What presuppositions do they have? What presuppositions do they use? What's their methodology of interpretation? And it's vital for amillennial Christians, uh, progressive dispensationalists, uh, post-millennial. It's vital that we identify these things and put them to the test and at least be aware of how our particular hermeneutic, our particular interpretation is going to affect passages that we read. So, if you have presupposition A, what will that, the impact of that presupposition be on biblical texts down the road? So, if you say, as dispensationalists do, that God has made a distinction in his redemptive plan, his purposes for Gentiles, his purposes for national Israel, if you identify that, at least you'll be able to see how that's going to impact passages that deal with Israel and deal with God's purpose. At least you're going to have a sense of the direction that's going to take you. Conversely, if you're all millennial and you're coming at this, say, from the classic you know, covenantal position of Reformed millenarians, then you're going to say, look, covenant's driving all of this. And the passages that are going to be problematic, I'm going to read in the light of covenant. So you're aware of potential pitfalls, you're aware of where the mines are, and you're at least able to, to check those presuppositions in the light of the text that you're looking at. How do dispensational presuppositions affect their understanding of prophecy? How do amillennial presuppositions affect our understanding of biblical prophecy? We've got to ask those questions. Now, as Protestants, we are all committed to sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. And... By that, we mean that God has revealed to us in the Scriptures everything we need to know to be delivered from the guilt of our sins and to gain eternal life. Uh, we also affirm with Peter that some of the things that Paul said are really difficult. They're hard uh, elements in Scripture. Uh, not all things are equally clear. Um, that's why we have to identify our methodology. Are we going to interpret the Bible literally in those difficult passages? Or are we going to use the analogia fide, where we're going to look at difficult passages in light of clearer passages? Our methodology is going to determine a lot in advance of how we look at these passages. At the end of the day, we believe that Scripture cannot err because it's God-breathed, and therefore, since Scripture is clear, and we hold to the fact that Scripture is clear, it means the problem... And the difference of interpretations among believers is because we are sinful. That's why we can't agree as to what the Bible says. It's not because the Bible isn't clear. It's because we're sinful. It's because we have presuppositions that are sometimes sinful and that we have to continually allow Scripture and our increasing, hopefully, our increasing knowledge of Scripture to continually inform our belief system. That's why it's a good exercise, I think, to go back, for those of us who are on mill, and deal with these issues again. Let's put them to the test again, just to make sure. Um, I, I was raised a dispensationalist. I didn't think you could be amillennial and even be a Christian. Um, I remember thinking that anyone who baptized an infant certainly was, was lost. That How could anybody believe or do such a thing? And now that I'm on millennial and realize I've made a pretty significant shift, 
I think it's important to hear the dispensational arguments again and, and to kind of let them ask the questions of me again and to see if I'm on firm ground. Because I'm assuming dispensations feel the same way. I don't want to be wrong. Do any of you want to be wrong? Then we need to let the text force these questions. We need to let our opponents ask the questions again and see if, in fact, the answers can hold uh, the weight of debate. The problem is not that Scripture is not clear, but that we're, in fact, sinful, and therefore the problem is within us. Now, the bottom line is, in all of this, we have to be willing to assume, at least in principle, that it's our own interpretation that may be in error. We're not going to get anywhere talking about eschatology if we've already assumed that we're right, that everyone else is wrong, and we adopt this position of invincible ignorance that no possible passage can overturn anything I believe, that no book, no person's argumentation, nothing can... If we're set in that position, then all we can do is call each other names. We're not going to get any place. So we've got to assume that we indeed may be in error. And since the three major millennial views contradict each other to, to some degree... At least two of them then, and possibly all three, are going to be in error at least to some degree. Now, while all of them may be wrong, not all of them can be right. And so we've got to be willing, at least in principle then, to ask these hard questions and to let iron sharpen iron and as brothers and sisters come together and reason this out. Now, the best way to determine the correct eschatological position from among the differing systems of thought then I think is to first identify and then evaluate the underlying hermeneutic that's involved. I think that's the starting point and I think that step is omitted many, many times when Christians talk about eschatology. And so you, there's just a whole bunch of assumptions in the room and if you're not able to put those assumptions to the test then you don't get any place. Now, an examination of the basic hermeneutic involved in, in each of the systems is, I think, the most important point from which to begin because then we can determine whether or not these interpretations, say, amil or dispensational premillennialism for, for the sake of argument now, whether they make the best sense of the biblical data. And those have to be identified and they have to be evaluated before you begin examining the text that these systems appeal when they're formulating their basic model of eschatology. And so at the end of the day, the hermeneutical method used will ultimately determine the way in which each system interprets the biblical data about future things. But I do think if we acknowledge what these presuppositions are and put them to the test, then it's possible for biblical data to overturn our presuppositions. Think of it as... in terms of Thomas Kuhn and, and paradigm testing where it's the critical experiment that ultimately overturns the paradigm. And that's the kind of way we have to approach this here. Um, putting these things to the test will allow us to see if we have error and in fact push us to a new position or, or push us to clarify. And, and again, I think it's helpful to, to hear dispensational objectives because it forces someone like me to be clearer, to anticipate some of these objections in advance and and perhaps clarify, uh, reformulate, look at the evidence again. I think that's a very, very healthy and important exercise. So, let's start with the dispensational hermeneutic 
And as dispensational writers will tell us, there are two basic presuppositions that underlie the dispensational system of biblical interpretation. The first of these is the so-called literal interpretation of the prophetic sections of the Bible. And I have literal in italics or hyphen there, uh, parentheses there, because I want to make the case that that's a claim. And that claim has to be put to the test. Now, for all millennial Christians, a literal interpretation of prophetic section of the Bible isn't a proper hermeneutic. It sounds great to say, well, I take the Bible literally. But is that the proper hermeneutic? The Protestant tradition has never affirmed the literal interpretation of the Bible. Rather, we've affirmed the analogia fide, or in Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but let me give you a test case. John MacArthur in his recent, recent Shepherds uh, Conference lecture says, if you get Israel right, you get eschatology right. Israel means Israel. A literal interpretation of Israel, right? Then when you come to the New Testament, and the apostles, I would argue, do the very thing MacArthur says that Christians shouldn't do, they reinterpret Israel in light of the coming of Christ, then is it a literal interpretation or Scripture interpreting Scripture. Now, the literal interpretation sounds like, of course we as Christians are going to take the Bible seriously and factually and historically. We're not going to spin it off as liberal Protestants do and just basically treat it as myth and allegory. When you claim you're using a literal interpretation, that's the foil. It's the liberal Protestant or the Roman Catholic who doesn't take Scripture very seriously anyway. That's why that argument's framed the way that it is. That's why it has some rhetorical bite. And yet, if you look at it through the lens of Scripture interpreting Scripture, we're going to argue that Jesus and the apostles tell us what Israel is all about in the New Testament. And that because we believe Scripture is inerrant, we want Scripture to interpret itself. So those are the two, those two hermeneutics, those two points have to be identified and put to the test. So dispensationalists, I think, end up with not a literal interpretation. I'm going to argue they have a literalistic interpretation. And I'm going to say, for the sake of argument, that they can't even make good on their claim to interpret the Bible literally. Now, at a popular level, this becomes really evident with guys like Hal Lindsey. And I want to make real clear, I'm using Lindsay as an example of a popularizer whom dispensational scholars and theologians would look at about like I would look at, oh, what's his face, the date setter on our side, Harold Camping. Okay, he's kind of treated as a pariah even in those circles. In the popular lore, Lindsay will tell us he's a dispensationist because he interprets the Bible literally. Then he comes to the book of Revelation and he reads of locusts. Now, after all of this stuff about literal interpretation, the locust is, in John's mind, John is seeing some future technology that he can't possibly understand, and a locust looks just like a Bell UH-1B Huey helicopter. Now, after arguing for the literal interpretation of the Bible to go to an allegorical interpretation that would make Origen blush, I don't think you can make good on that claim. 
Now, on a more academic level, we interpret the Bible literally. Take someone like George Ladd, who I greatly respect and admire as a scholar. Ladd, as a historic pre-mill, will say, if you look at Revelation 19 followed by Revelation 20, that pretty much cinches it for us. That means that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and at the end of that thousand-year reign is the judgment. Then when you go to a passage like Matthew 25, where Jesus speaks of the parable of the sheep and the goats, and He says when He comes back, on judgment He's going to separate the sheep and the goats. Lad says, oops, we have to insert a gap here. Now, I know that goes against my hermeneutic, but I have to insert a gap to get judgment at the end of the thousand years. And so I'm going to argue that the dispensationalists can't make good on that claim. Even someone who's not a dispensationalist, like Lad, has problems with that claim. Go back to Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 27, where you have the 70 weeks prophecy. You have that prophecy run consecutively in two blocks uh, for the first 69 weeks. Now, all of a sudden, there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week, and the tribulation is launched way off into the future. Where's the gap in the text? So the irony is, the dispensationalist who has claimed to interpret the Bible literally ends up having to insert gaps everywhere to make the thing work. I don't think they can make good on their claim. I don't think it's a legitimate claim in the first place. Now, as someone who argues that covenant is the overarching interpretive grid... The dispensations will say to me, you guys find covenant every place. Well, we see covenants in Scripture. We just don't see a covenant of grace and a covenant of works. You guys are imposing that on the text. And we'll have to argue when we get there whether or not we can sustain our position over against the dispensational criticism. The point is, unless these things are on the table and being evaluated, we're not going to get anywhere. The second dispensational presupposition is the recognition of distinctive programs between the church and Israel. Uh, dispensations will say there's one gospel, but that gospel has two purposes. One for national Israel and one for Gentiles. Now, if that's your operating assumption, that's why dispensationalists are going to have an Israel-centered hermeneutic. Because they have already presupposed that God has two distinct purposes for national Israel and for Gentiles, and if that's an operating assumption, then Israel has to be national Israel. And Israel's purpose has to be distinguished from Gentiles. So when, for example, you come to a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, a passage that very clearly teaches that Christ's purpose is to make two people one, dispensationists now have to say, well... That might be the purpose by the end of the age. That might be the purpose by the end of the millennium. But they can't see that passage as God's purpose for the bulk of this age. So before they even come to that passage, they're not going to be able to take Paul on his face because they've decided that they're two redemptive purposes. So when Paul tells us there's one, there's got to be some other explanation. And that's how these presuppositions color the way in which we, were, we read Scripture. That's why we have to identify them and deal with them. Now, let's get a little more specific here. As the leading dispensational writers universally point out, 
Um, dispensationalism is self-consciously founded upon a so-called literal interpretation of the Scripture. I want to read this quote. It's an older quote from Ryrie, uh, back from his book Dispensationalism Today, which jokingly is called Dispensationalism Yesterday because the book's uh, 30-some-odd years old now. But this is standard fare, and even in the more contemporary dispensational writers, you'll find the same kind of, same kind of argument. Quote, Dispensationalists claim that their principle of hermeneutics is that of a literal interpretation. The prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the first coming of Christ, his birth, his rearing, his ministry, his death, his resurrection were all fulfilled literally. There is no non-literal fulfillment of these prophecies in the New Testament. The dispensationalist claims to use the normal principle of interpretation consistently in his study, in all his study of the Bible. So I think that's a pretty straightforward statement. I think Rari has said it well. Um, I happen to have great sympathy for the idea that all those Messianic prophecies are fulfilled in a literal sense. That's one of the great arguments that Christians have always used against Jews, especially with whom we had the Old Testament in common that fulfilled prophecy is one of the greatest proofs of the inspiration of Scripture. But are all prophecies in the New Testament fulfilled literally? How do we know that by reading in the Old Testament? Unless we presuppose that. What do we do if in the New Testament we find illustrations of Jesus and the apostles doing something different than this? Yes, there are prophecies that are fulfilled quite literally. There are others where Jesus and the apostles do the very thing the dispensationalist says shouldn't be done, and that is spiritualize. I'm using a dispensational term because I don't think Jesus and the apostles spiritualized, but that's what dispensations. What do they do? Rari goes on to state, he says, it is this very consistency, the strength of dispensationalism, that irks the non-dispensationalism and becomes the object of his ridicule. Well, we don't ridicule Rari because his insistence that we take Scripture seriously, we don't ridicule him because we're having a problem with a literal prophecy being fulfilled in a literal way. The problem is that's a grid forced on the text and there may be cases elsewhere of fulfilled prophecy that's fulfilled in a non-literal way. You determine before you even get to the New Testament whether or not it's even possible for there to be other kinds of fulfillment. Rari says no. So we don't ridicule him for taking Scripture seriously, but the problem is he's not going to allow the New Testament to tell us what the Old Testament means. Now, former Dallas Theological Seminary president, the late John Walford, adds a very similar comment. This is from his book, The Millennial Kingdom. It's been reprinted many times. Quote, The premillennial position is that the Bible should be interpreted in its ordinary grammatical and historical meaning in all areas of theology, unless contextual or theological reasons make it clear that this were not intended by the writer. Stop. I'm going to argue in ten minutes that that's a proper way to read the Scriptures. That's exactly right. The problem is what follows. The literal method is sustained by literal fulfillment. The literal method of interpreting prophecy has been justified by the history of its fulfillment. The most unlikely prophecies surrounding the birth of Christ, his person, his life and ministry, his death and resurrection have all been fulfilled literally. 
Prophecies are therefore to be taken literally. The exact interpretation following the pattern of the law of fulfillment established by the prophecies already fulfilled and in keeping with the entire doctrine. Now, what, Ryrie, or what Walbert is, I think, backtracking on is when he says, unless contextual or theological reasons make it clear this is not intended by the writer. We're going to look at a bunch of illustrations where that's exactly the case. And so you end up with him saying, look, literal fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies mean we have to interpret all prophecies literally. Well, literal fulfillment of Messianic prophecies means we're going to interpret them literally. But what about cases where the apostles take passages applied to Israel, for example, and apply them to the Gentiles? What do we do then? Dispensationalists have to say, well, that must be for the millennial age after Christ comes back because we all know that can't happen in this age. How do we know that that can't happen in this age? Because you presuppose that it can't happen in this age. What if Jesus and the apostles actually do it? That's the point of debate. Now, since all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the life of Christ and uh, those Messianic prophecies are literally fulfilled in the New Testament. Dispensationalists contend that prophecies regarding other eschatological themes, such as the restoration of the nation of Israel, the revival of the Roman Empire, a literal reign of Christ upon the earth after His return, and all the material promises of the Abrahamic covenant, etc., they must also be literally fulfilled, and nothing else is acceptable in dispensational terms. Now, I think it's rather interesting. What were the Pharisees upset with Jesus about? What was the primary gripe the Pharisees had with Jesus? They wanted, what were they looking for as they read the Old Testament without Christ? What were they looking for? They were looking for a restored Israel. They wanted the Romans off their back. They wanted a Messiah to come and lead Israel to victory over Rome so the nation would be restored, the temple established again. And Jesus kept saying, no, 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 my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. My kingdom has nothing to do with a restored nation. That's why the Pharisees were so angry with Jesus. Now, if you're a dispensationalist, you have to say, well, that's true, but that means then the kingdom has to be restored later in the millennium. And we look at this and say, no, the Pharisees got it wrong. Their expectations were in error. That's why Jesus didn't grant them. Those are the kinds of questions we have to settle in order to break the logjam between the two positions. You can do the same with Israel. You can just, you do the same with the revival of the Roman Empire. Um, you can do that with every one of these right down the line. Now, you're going to discover right away, much to your surprise, that dispensationalists don't like the historic Protestant hermeneutic. Um, this was a real rude awakening for me when I was a lifelong dispensationalist. I began reading the Reformers. You hear you know, people talk about, gee, you ought to go back and read the Reformers. They're the... the Folk who led us away from the bondage of Roman Catholicism. And as you start to read Luther and Calvin and others, you realize that their methods are different. They're doing this in a different kind of way than dispensationalists are. And you find out right away then that dispensationalists don't like 
this analogy of faith because they're pushing for this literal interpretation. Listen to what Ryrie says about the analogy of faith. He calls it the non-dispensationalist position in interpreting prophecy is simply that the literal position is sufficient except for the interpretation of prophecy. We've never said that. If the prophecies are fulfilled literally, then we accept them as literally fulfilled. But what if Jesus and the apostles see a text and they spiritualize it? What then? Do we do a dispensation to and say, well, that, that has to be then fulfilled later? In this area, says Ryrie, the spiritualizing of prophecy must be introduced. The amillennialist uses it in the entire area of prophetic truth. His argument is then that we spiritualize every prophecy. Now, wait a minute. Some we do, but not all. The covenant premillennialist uses it only partially. This is his reference to uh, historic premill people at the time. There were a number of men in the faculty of covenant seminary in St. Louis or uh, was a biblical seminary that were at one time Presbyterian, had, had come out at least the biblical covenant was still uh, confessionally reformed, but there were, there were historic premillennialists. Uh, uh, someone jumps to mind, be J. Oliver Buswell, guys like that. So the covenant premillennialist uses it only partially. That is why the dispensationalist claims he is the only one who uses literalism consistently. And as we've, I think, already seen that's a claim that I'm not sure they can make good on. It's one thing to claim it. Is it the proper claim? My response to that is no. Can they make good on their own claim? My response to that is they can't. So, Ryrie's very clear, and, and that's helpful. Walward says pretty much the same thing again. Quoting, It is quite apparent that the amillennial method of interpretation of Scripture involves spiritualization has achieved a considerable popularity. Now, I kind of chuckle at that because one of the laments I have as an amillenarian is there are not many of us left. I think we're down to, what, 6,000? <laughs> kind of makes sure there are not a whole lot of us around. The dispensations have kind of captured the day here. Um, maybe he knows more spiritualizers than I do. It is not too difficult to account for the widespread approval of the spiritualizing method adopted by many conservative theologians as well as liberal and Roman Catholic expositors. So, here again, you have this very subtle attempt to say, if you're amillennial, you're using the same method that liberals and Catholics use. And it's a real cheap ad hominem or fallacy of generalization, however you want to cut it. It's just kind of at the end of the day, hmm. And, and we need to stop. I mean, I, I feel that way toward dispensations, but it just doesn't get us anyplace. Fundamentally, its charm lies in its flexibility. The interpreter can change the literal and grammatical sense of Scripture to make it coincide with his own system of interpretation. Now, that last line, he can make it coincide with his own system of interpretation. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to interpret prophecy in light of our, our system? If we acknowledge our presuppositions, yeah. That's what dispensationalists are doing in practice. They're interpreting prophecy in line with their system. That's what we're doing. 
So what Walbert's getting at, though, is to say, look, if you don't have any external controls, then prophecy becomes a wax notion. You can make it say whatever you want it to say. And I think you can find cases of Protestant liberals doing that. You can certainly find Rome being a little fast and loose with the text here. And the implication is, unless you interpret prophecy literally, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And he draws rather, um, I think he draws a lot out of that. Now, buried within Rari and Walbert's comments, and they're, they're recent dispensational writers who say exactly the same thing, uh, there are a couple of things we have to point out. According to dispensationalists, non-dispensational writers do not use at least consistently this literal method of interpreting Scripture. Point one, they don't like the fact we don't read prophecy literally. The result, they say, is the spiritualizing of prophetic texts without reference to the passage's literal meaning. Now, implied in that criticism is the idea that the amillennial interpretation allows the interpreter to spiritualize the Bible to make it fit into whatever grid we want it to. And the problem is you guys have taken this covenantal grid, you've imposed on the text, and you twist everything to make it fit your preconceived grid. But dispensationalists don't do that. Yeah, they do it. And yes, we do it. And the question is, how do we check and balance ourselves to make sure that we're not forcing a grid on the text? Or if we have a grid, we're constantly adjusting it in the light of the text. That's the issue here. This non-literal hermeneutic, they argue, supposedly provides no external controls upon a conclusion other than one's own basic theological system. And that supposedly undercuts Scripture's normative authority. Now, on our side, we're going to say that if you get inside Scripture and start to look out you're going to see that the skeletal structure of the Bible is covenant. And the only way to make sense of the Bible, the way the Bible makes sense of itself, is through the use of covenants. And so, who can justify their presuppositions from the text of Scripture the best? That's the debate we have to have. Now, as we've seen, there are some rather subtle ad hominem arguments here, this attempt to link uh, all millennialism with Protestant liberalism, or even Roman Catholicism. I mentioned last time uh, Barry Horner in his new book, Future Israel, which I guess John MacArthur is highly recommending um, from the endorsement on the back. Future Israel should be required reading for every pastor, seminary, and student of Bible prophecy. MacArthur's um, endorsement. Horner in that book quotes me at length, basically quoting John Walvoord. He doesn't mention I'm quoting Walvoord, but he uh, basically says, look, at the end of the day, you guys shamelessly adopt the eschatology of Roman Catholicism. And as I mentioned last time, that's just not the case. Roman Catholicism views the kingdom of God as the institutional Roman church. You want to find the kingdom of God on earth? Rome's it. It's churches, it's schools, it's... Uh, social outreach, all of that. That's the kingdom of God. Uh, I take a rather narrow view of the kingdom of God that it's tied to the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. Rome likes our view of the kingdom so well that the author of our confession, Guido de Bray, was put to death for affirming a reformed amillennialism. So Rome liked it so much they killed the guy. So those kinds of arguments just don't get us any place. Now, 
it's quite common in popular dispensation writers. Horner is a, a little better than the popular dispensation writers, but he, you get Hal Lindsey. And I mentioned this last time. I thought I would bring the quote in so you could you could hear it directly from Lindsey himself. Um, Amillennialism is demonic and heretical. Quote, Amillennialism became a philosophical basis for anti-Semitism. And you turn on television, you've got John Hagee, you've got the rest of these guys, just uh, Jack Van Imp, arguing this 24-7. Amillennialism teaches that the church has been given the promises made to the Israelites because they crowned a history of unbelief by rejecting the Messiah. Therefore, since in this view the Israelites have no future in God's plan, uh, Lindsay, excuse me, a lot of us believe that at the end of the age, God's going to save Israel. Lots of Jews are going to become Christians and join the church. Since they believe the Israelites have no future in God's plan, and since they believe that the Jews engineered the execution of Jesus, a subtle justification for the persecution of Jews resulted. This kind of teaching is demonic and heretical. I am thankful to say that no person who believes in the premillennial view can be anti-Semitic. I'd like to take Mr. Lindsay to the South. And I'll bet we could find some premillennial folks that are anti-Semitic. Probably could. Uh, this just doesn't get us any place. Um, I was on the Bible Answer Man with Hanegraaff when my book came out. And he played a quote I had not heard before and uh, took great delight in surprising me with it. And that is Jack Ben Imp saying that the worst heresy in the history of the Christian church was a millennialism. <laughs> I just kind of, I didn't know what to say. I well... I kind of thought it's foolish me. I kind of thought it was Arianism or you know Pelagianism, but oh man, that's that's the kind of stuff we get, and that's why so many people who have heard this just shut down before you even open your mouth because we're demonic and heretical, because we're anti-Semites. Now. The use of this non-literal hermeneutic operating outside the control of literal interpretation produces results of great concern to the dispensationalists, namely the failure to properly distinguish between the church and Israel. The other great pillar underlining the dispensational hermeneutic, and Ryrie again is very, very specific about this. Now, Ryrie's book came out about the time Daniel Fuller had done his uh, Law and Gospel Contrast or, or Continuum based on his doctoral dissertation. And Fuller is his foil here, but, but listen to the results. I mean, this is really helpful to have Rari say this. this. This clarifies a bunch. Regarding the interpretation of the promise made to Abraham, one critic, Daniel Fuller, states correctly the dispensationist understands the promises made to Abraham to require two seeds a physical and a spiritual seed for Abraham. So, one track, the spiritual seed of Abraham, which is why Paul in the New Testament can say believing Gentiles are the spiritual seed, but along with that has to run the progress of the natural seed, which is national Israel. So here it is. Two seeds that run throughout Scripture. So when you come to the New Testament, if you presuppose this, 
what do you do with passages like Ephesians chapter 2? Where Paul says the purpose of Christ was to make the two people one. If your hermeneutic is two seeds, then he can't make them one until the millennial kingdom. When he will make them one. It's not as though you're going to say, well, maybe the whole purpose of Christ is to make two peoples one. You can't allow the obvious reading of the passage because your hermeneutic prevents you from accepting it and you have to push it off into a future millennium. That's what I'm getting at when I say your hermeneutic is going to predetermine a lot of how you look at, at passages in the New Testament. I thought it was interesting that, that uh, Dr. Horner, in one of his, uh, I thought one of his best criticisms of all millennialism, and it's tied to covenant theology, says, look, you guys have this tension in your system because you say the promise to Abraham on the one hand is unconditional, and then you make the land promise conditional. And I, my response is, well, yeah, um, it's Paul who in Romans 4.13 says the land promise of Abraham goes to the whole world. It's Paul who spiritualizes an Old Testament promise made about the land. And it's Paul, not the amillenarian, it's Paul who tells us that that prophecy refers to the whole world. That's the very thing the dispensationalist says an apostle can't do and an apostle does it. The second thing is, conditional. What well, seems to me the promise of a land when it's made to Israel is conditioned upon what? Israel's obedience to the covenant God made at Sinai with Israel as a nation. That promise is conditional upon Israel's obedience. That's why in Joshua chapter 24, when Israel enters the land of promise, Joshua two times says that prophecy of the land is fulfilled. Not one jot or tittle of it remains outstanding. Now, Ryrie's just said, yeah, I see a tension too between a spiritual and physical seed. That conditional, unconditional tension, dispensationalists see it also. The question is, whose answer best explains it? And I would take you to Romans 4 and show you that that's what Paul does with it. And so that then becomes the basis for the dispensationalist notion that God has two mutually exclusive peoples. National Israel and the Gentile church, each with two distinctive purposes and programs. And so if you're thinking of things this way, that's why John MacArthur would very naturally state, if you get Israel right, you get eschatology right. And for MacArthur then, if you're reading Israel as Israel, you're going to understand prophecy. Whereas you covenant Amil people, you make Israel some kind of a spiritualized thing in the New Testament. You're not taking Israel as Israel. And as we'll see, that's not quite right when we get there. Now, this underlying hermeneutic, which I think is a presupposition read into the text and not derived from it, I, I, think it, I don't think they can make good on their own claim, this leads Ryrie to the following conclusion. I think this is very, very important. This is what dispensationalists don't like about covenant theology. Quote, The dispensationalist recognizes two purposes of God and insists in maintaining the distinction between Israel and the church. And all of this is built on an inductive study of the use of two words, not a scheme superimposed on the Bible. That is the matter under dispute. 
The amillenarian has an interpretive grid that we believe is developed by looking at the internal architecture, the internal structure in Scripture. Let's grant that the dispensationalists see their system in the same way. We're not imposing this on the text. You guys are doing that. We're doing this inductive, but we're looking at word studies. Then how do we resolve this? We've got to lay out on our table our presuppositions and evaluate them. Do they make sense of the passages? Can they, in fact, be justified from the text? So I think Rari is absolutely right. That's what our goal should be. The question is, can he make good on it? And so it's not a matter, he says, of superimposing a dual purpose of God on the Scriptures, but it is a matter of recognizing that in the New Testament, the word Israel does not mean the church and vice versa. I've never claimed that the word Israel means church. I don't know where he gets I just I, I read that and I think, I don't know who believes that. You don't say the word Israel means church. We argue that there's one people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New, that God's going to save his elect. And that national Israel, once it's dispersed, the believing elect remnant of Jews do what? They join the church. And that when Israel, I think in Romans chapter 11, comes back to a saving knowledge of Christ at the end of the age, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then all Israel is saved, I think ethnic Jews become Christians. So I, I just don't get... This is, a, this is a classic straw man argument. And it's not what we've been arguing. Says Rari, in other words, consistent literalism is the basis for dispensationalism. And since consistent literalism is the logical and obvious principle of dispensationalism, dispensationalism is more than justified. Except, Dr. Rari, if we have cases of the New Testament doing what Paul does in Romans chapter 4. What do we do then? What do we do in Ephesians chapter 2 where the Apostle basically says that is not true, that, that presupposition? Dispensation says, no, well, it's got to be for later then. Not in this age, but later. Where does it say it's fulfilled later? And so Rari's expressed a very noble goal. The question is, can he make good on his, his stated goals? With that, we come to the historic Protestant hermeneutic. And I'm, I'm using this now in a very generic sense because I want to talk about the hermeneutic, say, of someone like a lad, someone like Bob Strimple, someone who's even post I mean, Historically, Protestants have been pretty much united in their view of the Analogia Fide. And those systems kind of break down along uh, other, other issues. But those non-dispensationalists who, who look at the historic Protestant stream of uh, biblical theology, of taking sola scriptura seriously, those who would use the, the analogia fide as their primary hermeneutic scripture, interpreting scripture, that's the broad hermeneutic here. When we go farther along in coming weeks, we'll flesh out then the, the Reformed amillennial variety of this and our distinctly covenantal hermeneutic. So here we're talking big picture more, more broadly, more historically, and we'll get specific as we go along. Um, I would urge all of you, if you haven't seen this book, uh, uh, Daryl Bach edited a book a number of years ago called Three Views on the Millennium and Beyond. Uh, Strimple presents the all-millennial case. 
Uh, the other writers uh, get a chance to respond. Ken Gentry is the uh, post mill guy. Uh, the, the dispensationalist now, um, Craig Blazing, uh, does the dispensational argument. This is really a, a helpful book. I would urge all of you to read it. Strimple does just an outstanding job of presenting all millennialism and then defending it. But he identifies you know, three main presuppositions, and let's look at these. The first presupposition is the proposition that the New Testament should be allowed to explain the old. Now, that sounds so basic, but this changes everything. This is one of the fundamental principles of Bible study and yet one about which dispensational writers have not always been clear. The New Testament must be seen as the final authority and interpreter of the Old Testament. Well, where does the New Testament say that? That's one of the constant criticisms that we hear. Well, it says it in, in several places. Uh, turn your Bibles to John chapter 5, and let's look at verse 39. John 5, verse 39. Jesus had some very interesting things to say about how we should read the Old Testament. Uh, this is an important passage in that regard. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. So, as a Christian, that means when I pick up the Old Testament... Do I read it as a Jew looking ahead to the Messiah? On one sense, yes. That's the context. But as a Christian preacher, how am I going to preach the Old Testament? I'm going to point out that the context is Jews looking forward to a Messiah. The fulfillment is Christ. The New Testament. I'm preaching through Judges right now. How do I know... For example, that Gideon's a believer. Hebrews 11 tells me he's a believer. Yet when you preach the story of Gideon, you've got to treat it in its historical context. Talk about the, the events as they unfold. And yet, as a Christian looking back on it, I have the back of the book to tell me, despite this guy's building an ephod, Despite this guy's love of power, his, his Canaanite concubine, Abimelech, and him you know, denying that he's king and yet acting like a king, I know the guy's a believer because the New Testament tells me. A really important passage is Luke 24. This is a, this is a, a passage that it should be on the lips of every Christian. This is basically Jesus telling us how to read the Old Testament. He's on the road to Emmaus, and the disciples are walking along, getting a Bible study from Jesus. Wouldn't you love to have a tape recording of that? That, ha that would have to be just absolutely phenomenal. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures, what are the Scriptures? The Old Testament, the things concerning himself. Look at a passage like Galatians 3. This is another one where we watch Paul in practice doing what dispensationalists tell us shouldn't be done. And this is what the Apostle does. Galatians 3. Let's just look at, say, 18 to 25. We'll actually just read that whole section from, from 15 
through to 25. To give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, no one annuls to it, annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. So, Abraham, offspring, uh, 16, 3.16, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. How would we know that offspring was Christ? Did Abraham know that offspring was Christ? No. How do we know when we read back in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and Genesis 22 that promise has to do with the Messiah? Because the New Testament tells us so. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards, so the law, the covenant with Moses, is an overlay on top of the covenant God made with Abraham. Does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God and make the same promise void? The problem with the Judaizers, remember? Abraham, then historically after Abraham, Moses. That's why those with a blessed curse, blessing curse principle with Moses look back at circumcision and say, if you have it, you're blessed. If you don't have it, you are cursed. Instead of seeing these as two parallel tracks, they make them consecutive. Paul here says, no, don't do that because the law doesn't annul the promise. If the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham with a promise. So now Paul looks at the Old Testament and he asks the question, why then the law? This is the knowledge that every Jew would like to have had and didn't have. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law could have been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed have been by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You didn't know that in the Old Testament. But before faith came, we were held captive by the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith should be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Paul's whole point here is to tell us what all of that meant. He's interpreting for us the Old Testament. That's how we have to understand eschatology. That's how we have to understand these prophecies in the Old Testament. And it's just patently simple. Let me read Ephesians 2 because we've been talking about that for a while and I haven't read the passage yet and I think this is so powerful on its face. I'll never forget the first time we went through this in our New Testament exegesis class and I'd gone into Westminster's kind of a mortally wounded dispensationalist you know, still hanging on but it was going quick and then we got to this passage. Paul here, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, the Jews calling the Gentiles the uncircumcised. Remember that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. He who's made us both one 
and it's broken down by in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What was the dividing wall? The inner outer court of the Gentiles in the temple. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul here does exactly the thing dispensations tell us shouldn't be done. He allegorizes the Old Testament. Jesus came to take two peoples, those who were far off and those who were near, and make them one. Is Paul here telling us this happens now in the church age? Or is Paul telling us this happens in the millennium or at the end of the church age? Now! The temple. I thought that was the building that's going to be rebuilt in the millennial kingdom. In Him, you are being built into a dwelling place for God, verse 21. In Him, you grow into a holy temple in the Lord. The Jerusalem temple foreshadowed, not a rebuilt temple in the millennium, but the Jerusalem temple was a picture of us of the heavenly temple, the reality, which is now on earth. How? The church, the mystical body of Christ, the living temple. Now, on dispensational presuppositions, this passage makes no sense because it can't be fulfilled now. The whole point of Paul is that's Christ's purpose is to take two peoples and make them one. This doesn't mean the church becomes Israel. It means Jews become Christians. That's what we're talking about. And because Christianity is not a culture, Jews can still be Jews and be Christians. Culturally, they can be Jews. Of course they can. That's why Paul's talking about if you're a Jew and you become a Christian, you can keep kosher. Just don't make a Gentile do it. So, passages like that just make no sense whatsoever on dispensational, uh, dispensational presuppositions. And we could go on and on and on, and we will in the coming weeks. We'll look at more and more of these, especially tied to kingdom and other things that, that really relate to this debate. Second, says Strimple, the Old Testament prophets and writers spoke of the glories of the coming Messianic age in terms of their pre-Messianic age. The prophets speak in terms of things imminent. They speak in terms of things relevant to national Israel that foretold of things yet to come that they could not possibly understand until Christ came. A great example of this is the question the apostles put to Jesus in Acts chapter 1. This, I think, just hits the nail on the head how difficult it was for the disciples to get it until Pentecost. So, Acts 1.6, When they came together, they asked him, Lord, will at this time you restore the kingdom to Israel? And so dispensations say, See? He's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. That's not the answer. The disciples are asking the wrong question. They don't get it yet. 
And he said to them, it's not for you to know times and seasons. The Father is fixed by his own authority. The reason why you don't understand is because you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. Until the Holy Spirit had been poured out and they witnessed the gospel's power to save people from all that table of nations there, they're still hanging on to the promise of national Israel. And once Pentecost comes, it's real clear that the kingdom of God now spreads to the entire earth. It's not limited to a single nation. That's why it is so important to allow that the Old Testament writers predicted things in terms of their own period of time. And it's not until Christ comes and redemptive history continues to unfold that they could possibly understand what fulfillment would actually entail. And then third, it's a basic hermeneutical point that we're always to interpret such Old Testament figures in light of their New Testament significance. Um, If we don't do that, we end up reading the Bible through an Israel-centered hermeneutic, as our dispensational friends insist. We're standing in the Old Testament, looking ahead, and telling the New Testament what it has to say, as opposed to seeing Christ coming and looking back and telling us what those prophecies meant all along. I can give you, I think, a real simple and helpful illustration. If we were to turn off the lights in this room and walk around, we'd bump into everything because we couldn't see it. If we turn the light on, all of a sudden the the layout of the room would make sense to us because we could see what was here. That's exactly the relation of the Old Testament to the New. The Old Testament, everything's in place. It's just that without the light of Christ, we can't really make sense of it. When Christ comes, it's not as though everything changes. It's so now we've got the light to make sense of it. And that's all we're arguing. The light of Christ tells us what the Old Testament actually meant. And so Gaffin, I think, is helpful here when he reminds us, look, the New Testament should be allowed to explain the Old, quoting Gaffin. Is the New Testament to be allowed to interpret the Old as the best, most reliable interpretive tradition in the history of the church, and certainly the Reformed tradition has always insisted, does the New Testament as a whole, as the God-breathed record of the eschatological endpoint of history of special revelation, provide the controlling vantage point for properly understanding the entire Old Testament, including its prophecies? Or alternatively, will the Old Testament become the hermeneutical fulcrum? We say New Testament, dispensationalists say Old Testament. And that is the point of contention, and that's what you have to decide. Now, you know, Gaffin's comment sounds self-evident, but that's not always the case. Certainly not with dispensationalists. We argue that the New Testament provides the controlling interpretation of the Old Testament. And so when Ryrie says, look, if you don't interpret the Bible literally, you have no external controls, you can make any passage a wax nose and twist it to mean whatever you want, We've said all along, no, 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 no. The New Testament tells us what the Old Testament means. This isn't twisting the text. We're allowing Jesus and the apostles to tell us what those passages meant. And so the interpreter of the Old Testament is then uh, to look at how the New Testament writers treat these same themes. And if the New Testament writers spiritualize Old Testament prophecies by applying them what a dispensationalist would call a non-literal sense, 
then the Old Testament passage must be allowed to be read in light of the New Testament and not vice versa. And so the irony here is, since dispensationalists don't do that, they're not taking the Bible literally because they don't allow Jesus and the apostles to tell us what the Old Testament means. Is it not the literal interpretation of Scripture to let the apostles tell us what the Old Testament's about? So, as to the second presupposition, the Old Testament prophets and the writers spoke of the glories of the coming Messianic age and in terms of their own pre-Messianic age, this is certainly true of the nation of Israel, the land of Palestine, Canaan, the city of Jerusalem, the Davidic throne, the temple. These are all portrayed in the Old Testament as reflecting the language, history, and experience of the people at the times the prophecies were given. Let me, let me just real concretely. Canaan. Big figs. Lots of grapes. A wife who's always pregnant. Lots of kids. The bad guys, miles away. Peace, prosperity. Is that the reality? Well, we come to the New Testament and we realize all of that points us to what? Heaven. Can I understand heaven without some kind of an earthly analogy? How do we know that's true? Abraham. Abraham looked at the land of promise. Hebrews 11 says when he looked at the land of promise, he was looking to a city whose builder and maker is God. He was looking to the heavenly city. He saw the earthly land as a type of heaven. That's how I know that big figs and lots of grapes and lots of kids and deliverance from the, the Canaanites was a good thing and a picture to me of the ultimate inheritance. Now, is heaven going to be vineyards? No. Is heaven going to be a pregnant wife all the time? Not if you're not a Mormon. <laughs> no, but those things are earthly pictures of things we can't possibly conceive. But we understand peace from our enemies. Every time Israel gets 40 years of peace or how many years of peace from one of these judges, it's a picture of our heavenly rest. That's how we know. The New Testament tells us these things. So every one of these eschatological themes is reinterpreted in the New Testament where we're told that these Old Testament themes are types and shadows of the glorious realities that are fulfilled in Christ. And therefore, the general thrust of redemptive, a thrust of redemptive history moves from type and shadow, the language used by the prophets describing the glories of the coming Messianic age, to the reality that's found in Christ. And according to all millenarians, this means that Jesus Christ is the true Israel. Jesus Christ is the true temple. Jesus Christ is the heir to David's throne. And so on and so on and so on. In coming weeks, we're going to uh, tackle that and, and try and prove it. And then third and, and last, the hermeneutical presupposition that Old Testament figures are allowed to be read and lie their New Testament significance is huge. It's a major step forward in finding an answer to the millennial question. That is, develop this contextual framework from the New Testament itself as its different writers then flesh out and understand this, the varying eschatological themes. Now take, for example, just some, some real simple ones. The kingdom of God. It's alluded to and mentioned a couple of times in the Old Testament, never defined. Jesus appears in Galilee 
following John the Baptist. And what is the first thing they say? The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what John and Jesus really were talking about was the kingdom is going to be offered to Israel and then if the Jews accept, it's going to be postponed. No, they say, it's at hand. It's here. The Greek term means it's right under your nose. And how do we know it's present? Jesus casts out demons, He heals the sick, and He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. You can do the same thing with the two-age model. We'll spend a lot of time on the two-age model. I'm going to argue that the biblical writers are not millenarian. They argue for two eschatological ages, this age and the age to come. This age always refers to things that are temporal. The age to come always refers to things that are eternal. Leaves no place for a golden age on the earth either before or after Christ comes back. We'll spend some time on that. What about the Holy Spirit? Revealed in the Old Testament, very limited, kind of shadowy way. In the New Testament, once Christ comes, Christ comes, we see now the work of the Spirit. We can go on and on and on. Uh, the New Testament flushes out all of these things that are in the Old Testament. So, since we've come to the end of our time, let's uh, basically summarize then real quick the three basic points that uh, dispensationalists have, the, the two basic points for dispensationalists, a literal interpretation of Scripture and distinct purposes for Israel and the church. And then for all millenarians, the New Testament interprets the Old. The Old Testament writers spoke in pre-Messianic terms, describing the glories of the future in the terms of the age, and that the New Testament always interprets Old Testament figures in light of their significance, especially in Christ. And so what we'll do next time is we'll talk about the analogy of faith and press further along in this notion of how we interpret the Bible, how we as Christians handle eschatological passages as we go farther then we'll start to unfold some of these more distinctly reformed amillenarian and covenantal uh, presuppositions. So we're working from the broad and the the general to the more specific. We'll do that next time. Any questions? Dr. Riddlebarger, as you were speaking, I thought about further implications of the dispensational error. And one thing immediately crossed my mind. Is it one of the serious implications of that, the loss of the biblical doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the sacraments, and with respect to worship, what about the covenantal foundation of the church? In other words, will dispensationalism carry too far eliminate any relevance of uh, Zechariah's song, the Benedictus, or St. Simeon's, the Nuctimitus? Those are very long questions. Let me give a very simple answer. Yes. Um, dispensationalism really does chip away at a lot of the things that Protestants regarded, have regarded as, as essential uh, to the Church of the Sacraments, for example. Um, why is it that dispensationalists tend to be memorialists. Why do they tend to be Baptistic and not paedo-Baptistic? It's the hermeneutic. It's the the stress on discontinuity between the new covenant and the old covenant without seeing the new as the fulfillment of the old. Uh, You know, I I, I kind of chuckle because dispensationalists speak of replacement theology. Um, They replace the covenant of Abraham with the new covenant 
and treat them as though they're two completely different covenants. And so there's no continuity between the Passover and the Lord's Supper, between circumcision and baptism. So you lose that and you end up with entirely new sacraments and entirely new covenant has no relationship to the Abrahamic covenant that went before. So you're kind of stuck in them. Well, what was this covenant with Abraham? Why does Paul keep talking about it as though it's present today when, no, 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 we're new covenant people. So the, the, the continuity between the promise made to Adam and Abraham and then David and on and on up to Christ and the establishment of the new covenant as the, the New Testament manifestation of the covenant of grace, all that gets torn apart. So every one of those things then becomes a problem. Let me even give you a bigger one. How do you explain law and gospel? Um, I grew up in a church we never once learned the Ten Commandments because law was for a different dispensation. And in the New Testament church, we're under the law of love. And so the law of love was basically the house rules for whatever church I happened to be in at the time. Um, depending on the church, don't smoke, don't drink, don't, don't gamble, don't dance. Some churches divorce, remarriage is a big deal. Uh, I remember a huge debate in a church about whether or not women wore pants to church. You know, all of that because when you don't have the law of God as your, the, the moral law as your ethic, and you're living by the undefined law of, of love, then you go off into all kinds of man-made rules and regulations. And you basically lose that notion of a works principle and a grace principle running side by side from Genesis to Revelation. You, you lose that. And so you end up in a, in a New Testament era, ironically antinomian. You don't have the law of God, and so you replace it with the house rules. And the house rules are deceptive because you can actually keep those. And then if you keep those, you think you're doing pretty well. But the law of God, on the other hand, shows me even as a Christian how sinful I am. Oh, no, but that's for a different dispensation. I can recall the tragic Sunday. And it was, it was heartbreaking to me. My wife and I had, were members of a church. We loved the people. We loved the pastor. Preached a great sermon from the Old Testament in which he concluded by saying, people under the Old Covenant were saved by keeping the law. And I thought, is it dispensation? That makes perfect sense. Then the next Sunday, he flipped ahead to the same character from Hebrews 11. He's justified by faith alone. And it, uh, that's when it hit me. Wait a minute. That is one big, giant contradiction. And then the third Sunday, on the crucifixion, Jesus, a man's man. He obeyed the Father's will without complaining. My wife and I, in the middle of the sermon, he, Jesus uh, showed leadership. He showed sacrificial servant leadership. We looked at each other, we made eye contact, and we both, without saying a word, Realize that's it. We're done. That's it. Next question. Um, tonight you've been primarily uh, uh, contrasting amillennial to classic dispensationalism. I wondered, um, the progressive dispensationalists do acknowledge that the promises to Abraham include um, Gentiles. Yes, they do. And I wondered, is this, does this represent a change in their hermeneutic? That's yeah, why classic dispensationalists yeah. don't regard progressive dispensationalism as dispensationalism. Okay. And that's why Ryrie and the rest of them had a fit with the onset of progressive dispensationalism because it, it betrays 
at least classical dispensationalists felt it gave away the farm. And I, I think if you're going to end up as a, as a progressive dispensationalist, there's not a big step between that and historic premillennialism. And, and Ladd's a lot clearer than, than any of the progressive dispensationalists that I know. So just embrace Ladd and we'll get along fine. Thank you. Okay, in reading your book, A Case for All Millennialism, you cite some of these same authors um, frequently, Walvard, Pentecost, uh, Ryrie. I'm just wondering, the only contemporary one you mentioned tonight was Horner. Have any of the other uh, newer writers, and I'm wondering if why you quoted those other ones that maybe are 30, 40 years old, is that because maybe... Those were the strongest, most foundational writers on this subject, or um, I'm not sure why. So Great question. I'm, I'm uh, asking about that. And then to finish, has have there been any other books written in response to your books where this new generation says, yes, the way that you characterize this is correct, or no, it's not, and this is what's wrong with it, and what would you say play devil's advocate, what would you say is their best response to what you're saying okay. um, currently? Okay. Uh, two questions. The first is, I made every effort to cite the best dispensational theologians. And I always try and make an effort to, to make sure that popular dispensationalism, the Lindsay, Dave Hunt kind of stuff, is regarded by dispensational writers as kooky. The dispensational scholars regard that kind of stuff as kooky the same way we would look at Harold Camping and say, he's a kook. He needs to be removed from his word processor. And so you try and cite the better guys. And these are the guys that I read as I was growing up as a dispensationalist. Um, I read J. Dwight Pentecost's Things to Come from Cover to Cover. And... As you look at the footnotes carefully, you'll notice I cite dispensationalists up into the 80s and 90s as well. But I think it's really important to let their best guys speak. And I'm not aware of dispensational scholars that have the same gravitas as a Ryrie and as a Walvoord and as a Pentecost. Um, and a lot of the better dispensational scholars, the other question I think indicate a lot of that that same cadre have moved into progressive dispensationalism. And I see progressive dispensationalism as a step really in the right direction. And I can talk to progressive dispensationalists and, and have much more in common with them with the classic dispensationalists. But I kind of think the classic dispensationalists are right that if you grant the moves away from classic to progressive, my response is, come on over. Give it up. Then you've got to deal with all the problems we talked about last time. Evil in the millennial age, people in resurrected bodies living next to people in unredeemed bodies. They've got all of those problems that attach to all forms of premillennialism. So it is the slippery slope and we welcome with open arms. Come on over. We, we, but we can talk. As for your second question, uh, has there been anything in response? Um... I, I don't know John MacArthur. I have a lot of respect for John MacArthur. I have a lot of respect for Phil Johnson. Uh, Mike and I, the only time I've ever met John MacArthur, Horton and I were at uh, Salem's offices up in Glendale uh, to talk about Whitehorse in business and uh, Dr. MacArthur and 
Phil Johnson were there and very friendly and I think a lot of John MacArthur. I thought the Shepherds Conference speech was a man who was reacting against, uh, I think, a number of his own circle becoming all millennial. And if you're in the blogging world, you know, there are a lot of John MacArthur's guys that have recently become all millennial. I think he was responding to that movement as opposed to me or anybody else. We're not even in the same circles. We're on the same radar. But I thought MacArthur's speech was very defensive. And I think it's a case of somebody trying to go from being on the defensive to being on the offensive again. And so he, he really responded to some of these issues, but he responded by citing people like Oswald T. Ellis from the 30s and 40s and even earlier. And he didn't interact and hasn't interacted with someone like Anthony Hookema or Gerhardus Voss or Meredith Klein or Mike Horton or uh, David Hallward, on and on. He doesn't react with any of them. So uh, I, I mentioned Barry Horner a couple times. The only reason I don't know how widely uh, accepted that book is it's relatively new. Like all other sinners, uh, I picked it up to look at my name in the index in the back because here's the first dispensational book that I had found that had written since A Case for Amelism came out. And of course, he's issued me on a, on a couple of points I mentioned. And in fairness to Horner, he does tackle your hardest boss. Um, in that book, his response to Voss was that Voss was mean to premillennial people. And his response to me was that you've basically adopted, a, shamefully adopted a Roman Catholic. And in the two texts where he criticizes the book, um, one was in the Acts 15 passage with James. We'll get to that next time. He basically doesn't even respond to the issue and just repeats the dispensation. So I found his book particularly very frustrating in that it's kind of, I'm just going to restate our position and that refutes you. Well, no, it doesn't. So, and I think the reason why we've got to go back and we've got to isolate these, these fundamental differences. Is there two redemptive purposes? Are there two redemptive purposes? Do we interpret prophecy? We, those, that's where we have to have the fight. Because if you, if you don't get at those issues, then of course he's going to read a passage a particular way, given his presupposition. Ephesians 2 can't be talking about the church age because there are two purposes for God. And if you believe there are two purposes for God, then you have to see that passage referring to the future. And I look at that passage and I say, that passage tells me the exact opposite. It's telling me that God's purpose is to take two and make them one. So it's presuppositions. Good question. Time for one more, I think. An empty microphone sitting there, and so we're done. Well, let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this chance to let iron sharpen iron, for this chance to evaluate the presuppositions held by our dispensational brothers and sisters and to uh, look at them in light of our own presuppositions, our own view that Christ is the hermeneutical center of all of Scripture. Father, we first of all acknowledge and confess that our differences come because we are sinful, not because your word is unclear. And we pray, Lord, that you would indeed send your Holy Spirit, the teacher of all truth, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth. We pray, Father, that you illumine your word so that we all understand it, that we all handle it and correctly and divide it rightly. And we pray, Father, that you will enable us to do this. 
We ask, Lord, as we deal with these differences of opinion, that you would give us charity towards each other, that you would help us to see that this is not a matter of pride, but a matter of wrestling with these texts so that we do indeed come to a, a better and more complete knowledge of your work and redemption and the things you've done to save us from our sin. And we pray, Lord, that as we reflect on these things, we would be uh, all the more eager for that great and glorious day when Jesus Christ returns to judge the world and raise the dead and make all things new. And so, Father, we pray those same words that the Apostle Paul uh, cited in his benediction to the Corinthians. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus.